0: be seated. And if you would, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 26. Acts 26, as we return to our study of the book of Acts and begin to come to the home stretch. We've been calling this series the Acts of the Risen Lord. It's what Jesus continued to do in the first few decades after his resurrection and ascension. Of course, that work that was done, that's why it's called acts, these are acts, things happened here. These acts are done through the apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is certainly the unseen mover and shaker, just as he is still today, as he sends his people out on mission and builds his church, both adding to it and making it stronger. We'll look at the first half of Acts 26 today, but I'll begin reading in chapter 25, where we can gather some context and see the setting. Chapter 25, verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa in Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said... King Agrippa, in all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. As he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. Well, Paul's speech goes on from there, and we'll see the rest of it next week on Easter Sunday. We'll take just the first half of it this week. Words are funny things, aren't they? Depending on context, there can be some flexibility or elasticity to the meaning of words. Not long ago, a friend of mine, maybe 10 years, my elder, he said to me, help me out. When guys younger than us talk about something blowing up, it can be good? And I said, yeah, blowing up, of course, in our day, it it meant um, it's, you know, falling apart. But blowing up now, it it can be used in terms of uh, things really taking off, things really going well, things are blowing up. Well, Sometimes usages of words even defy the technical definitions in dictionaries, at least for a while, until... The dictionaries catch up with our usage. Take that one word in verse 8 of our chapter incredible. Why would anyone think it incredible that God raises the dead? Is the resurrection incredible? Now, if you invite a friend from out of state to come to the Albuquerque balloon fiesta with you, probably at some point they will look around, they will marvel, and they will say, This is incredible. Or if you take your family to the Grand Canyon and you stand on the precipice, you might mutter to yourself, This is incredible. And that's common usage, but it's not part of the technical definition of that word, incredible. Incredible means not credible, not believable, it's inconceivable. And as Aniga Montoya taught us, sometimes that word does not mean what you think it means. Well, Paul thinks that the resurrection of Jesus is not incredible, but credible. Paul is not an incredible witness, but a credible witness to the eyewitness, to the resurrection of Jesus. And here in Acts 26, he'll lay out his case once again. It should feel pretty familiar to you if you've been with us studying the book of Acts in recent weeks. We're in a section, in the last one fourth of the book of Acts, where the storytelling slows way down and the camera lens zooms in almost solely on Paul. At least everything else is related to Paul. Paul is the main character in these chapters, and there's really only one main theme Paul on trial. He was arrested back in chapter 21. Then he addressed his accusers in chapter 22, that angry Jewish mob. In chapter 23, he gave his defense before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. In chapter 24, he gave a defense before the Roman governor, Felix. And then Acts 25 set the stage for the defense that we just started to read in Acts chapter 26 before Governor Festus, before King Agrippa, and his weird sister Bernice. If you wonder why she's weird, you can go back and listen to the last sermon. Now, in some ways, this is just common fare for Paul. He's under arrest, he's on trial. Another day, another trial, another defense. From another angle, though, this is an unusual opportunity. That's the first of four headings that mark out our passage for today. Verses 1 through 3, an unusual opportunity. Paul has told his story. He's talked about Jesus countless times in the book of Acts, but never quite like this, not in this august of a setting. The people involved, King Agrippa, who's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, And Festus, the new governor in town, seeking to impress the neighboring ruler and his sister, all that means that the red carpet is rolled out, full regalia is adorned, the trumpets are blown, the generals, the colonels, full battalions all assembled, A couple thousand of who's who is here for this, not because the prisoner is so important or what he says will be so important, but because they think themselves important. And God will take advantage of that. As far as they're concerned, this is about pomp and circumstance. Or maybe even more noble is that they're solving a political judicial pickle but God has his man in this place at this time with these people for his purposes. It's an unusual, special opportunity. One that Paul couldn't have masterminded or organized or planned in advance for. It's God's doing. Jesus is orchestrating events in people in surprising ways to give Paul this platform with these people, this audience at this time. You think of what came before in this winding road of providence leading up to this point. You think of the riot in chapter 21, the arrest, the beatings, the dark, cold nights in a Roman jail. You remember... The Lord's promise in chapter 23, verse 11, when he visited Paul one dark night and said, as you've testified of me in Jerusalem, you will testify of me in Rome. That's where you're going. But how it gets there, it isn't quite clear. When it happens, is isn't quite clear. Paul is stuck in prison under Felix for two years. And the judicial process moves along Zero percent. And then a new governor who is slightly more curious, slightly more judicious than the last. A A visit from King Agrippa who's curious to hear from Paul himself. This is the mysterious winding road of divine providence. And I think it's one reason why Luke takes his time to lay this out bit by bit over so many chapters. In fact, let's just pause on that idea for a moment. Because scholars and even preachers are fascinated and puzzled and curious and even slightly frustrated at times, with why Luke does what he does in this last one fourth of the book of Acts. Why this intense focus on Paul's imprisonment, trials, and defense? Why record the dialogue of four different hearings? Why does Luke recount Paul's conversion first in chapter 9, but then in Paul's retelling of it in chapter 22, and then again more thoroughly in chapter 26? You feel the repetition? Or just chapter 25 is a case in point. In chapter 25, we we read firsthand of Paul's interactions with Governor Festus, but then we're told of those interactions a second time when the governor tells King Agrippa, and then a third time when the governor addresses this regal crowd. So why does Luke give so much attention, so much detail to these similar events? Let me just run through some bullet points. As I said, perhaps to paint the picture of the winding road of divine providence. More specifically, to show the fulfillment of that important promise in chapter 23, verse 11, that Paul would one day make it to Rome. Well, how does the book of Acts end? Paul is in Rome. I think also to show Paul's innocence with regard to these trumped-up charges. Paul was innocent, and three different people state Paul's innocence in, in these trials. I think Luke also intends to demonstrate that Christianity is not some sort of new geopolitical uprising. It's not a revolution in that sense. Christians generally are law-abiding, peaceful, and respectful people. And Paul demonstrates that. I think Luke intends to help Christians when they face persecution or false accusations to see in the Apostle Paul a reminder, yeah, this is, this is common fare. This is what happens to Christians. This is, this is the outplaying of Matthew 10 where Jesus said, they will drag you into court and you will testify about me in those courts. I think Luke intends for Christian readers to be emboldened to represent Christ well, no matter how intimidating or threatening the circumstances are. I think he's intent to show Paul's relentless gospel focus. He just keeps bringing everything back to the gospel, to Christ, to the resurrection. And Luke wants to retell that over and over to show the relentlessness of Paul's commitment to proclaim the gospel. Or really, you could say, well, this is part of the, the scope and sequence of the gospel getting to the end of the earth. The book of Acts began, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And that's what's happening here, mysteriously, surprisingly, through Paul's trials and Roman citizenship and defenses. It's getting passed along from one governor to a king and eventually to Caesar. So Paul being imprisoned and on trial and misrepresented It isn't for nothing. It's not a waste. It's opportunity for Paul. Later, in a later imprisonment, Paul will write to the Philippian church and he'll talk about the opportunity that his imprisonment has. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. His imprisonment, Serves the advance of the gospel. Why? How? Well, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. In fact, he ends the letter by saying, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. There are Caesars, there are some among Caesar's household that are now among the saints. The whole imperial guard has now heard the gospel because their duty is to keep watch of Paul, and Paul speaks while they're there. It's got me thinking this week what scenario and what circumstances can any Christian find themselves in where it's not an opportunity for the Lord? Maybe not even just an opportunity for the gospel, though that's important and we should consider that. An opportunity for truth, an opportunity for love, an opportunity to be salt and light and to represent God well in actions and in thoughts. And like Philippians 2 says, you'll shine as bright lights in this world if you just don't complain. So what opportunity, what circumstances, what scenario can a Christian find themselves in where they can't consider it a divine appointment with God's purposes? That must be taken advantage of and and not missed. What inconvenience you face. What, What trials do you go through? What new relationship do you find yourself in? What difficult relationship do you find yourself in? In all of these, a Christian can think of it as an opportunity for their Lord. Well, verses 1 through 3 kind of sets the stage with this unusual gospel opportunity. Verses 4 and following are really the speech proper, where Paul recounts his life before Christ, he tells of his encounter with Christ, and then he begins to work out the implications of it. So secondly, let's consider an unlikely candidate. Verses 4 through 11, as Paul recounts his life before Christ he describes an unlikely candidate for Christianity. In fact, the most unlikely. Paul's former manner of life, as he puts it in verse 4, adds credibility to his conversion to Christ and the truth of the resurrection because no one saw it coming that Paul would become a Christian, let alone a Christian missionary. No one would have predicted it. Verses 4 and 5, he says he's a strict Pharisee. He grew up as a Pharisee, the most conservative religious party. He was a a fundamentalist. He was a Puritan. He wasn't caught up then in newfangled ideas. He wasn't a a progressive looking for something new or novel. He wasn't willy-nilly about his faith. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel meaning he was something like a, a road scholar of Jewish thought he was committed he was all in he was holding nothing back he says in philippians 3 if anyone would have reason to rely on or trust in or commend before god their works their their credentials paul would he was a pharisee of pharisees he was a jew of the jews he was he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And as to zeal, he says, he was a persecutor of the church. He wasn't just a strict Pharisee. He was a severe persecutor. Verses 9, 10, and 11 tell us what we have already read in their present tense back in chapter 7, 8, and 9. In chapter 7, when Stephen was stoned, those stoning him laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It seems to me that any time in the book of Acts, something is laid at someone's feet, the person to whom they lay at the feet is in charge. Paul's in charge. Chapter 8, verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. For chapter 9, verse 1, Saul, also called Paul, he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He got papers from Jewish officials to go to Damascus, 150 miles to the northeast, so that if he found anyone of the way there that he would drag them back to Jerusalem for trial, for imprisonment, and in his mind, hopefully, for death. Or as it says in verse 11 of our chapter, I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme. That's what he calls it now as he looks back on it, meaning that Christ is divine. He tried to get them to recant Christ. Now he realizes he was trying to make them blaspheme. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Do you see how this was the, the most unlikely candidate to become a Christian, let alone a missionary, let alone the great apostle Paul? And yet here he stands in Acts 26 as a Christian, as a missionary, as an apostle, and on trial for the hope of the resurrection. Hope is a word he uses three times. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. That doesn't mean a hope so, a desire, a want. No, this is an anticipation. This is a happy anticipation of something to come. The whole Bible spoke of the hope to come. And Paul knew of that hope to come. He knew of the one who was to come, and he knew of the final resurrection being a kind of hope at the end. But now he knows the one. He was wrong about that one, the Christ, Jesus, for a while, and then something happened. Now he can speak of the resurrection of Christ as the hope or the promise made by God to our fathers. This is what he's on trial for. This is the crux of his life. But but how do you get from point A to point B? How do you get from Paul the Pharisee and persecutor to Paul the gospel preacher of the resurrection? Well, thirdly, an unexpected encounter. That's how. An unexpected encounter. Again, it's told in chapter 9. It's repeated in chapter 22, repeated again here in our chapter. And these accounts of Paul's encounter with the risen Christ vary slightly, but not inconsistently so. They've simply added or taken away details Just as any of us, if we told the same story three times, would maybe inadvertently either leave off or add new details as it went on. But all the basic details are there. Paul was headed to Damascus to stop Christianity's spread. And on the way, he was intercepted. A light from heaven, brighter than the sun, appeared. He saw it. Those with him saw it. It knocked him to the ground. In other accounts, we're told it blinded him for three days. He heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And here in chapter 26, this uniquely is said, verse 14, Jesus says, it's hard to kick against the goads. Now, what does that mean? Well, a goad was a sharp prod used with oxen, usually fixed to the cart behind them. And so if they slowed down or if they kicked, they kicked the goad. And that hurts. And that gets you nowhere. It's useless. Imagine you punching a knife. Well, that's just stupid. It hurts. It gets you nowhere. Well, this was a common saying, it's hard to kick against the goad. All of Paul's kicking against Christ, all of his kicking against God's people was all for naught. Now the fighting was over. I am Jesus, his first name, his human name. I am Jesus who you are. Persecuting. Now, we can break this encounter down a number of ways. We can look at it from several different angles. Let me suggest seven. Let's consider that this encounter was, number one, unexpected. It was unexpected. Again, no one saw it coming, it's unexplainable apart from the resurrection. Paul wasn't softening to Christianity. He wasn't wrestling with guilty feelings as later psychologists have surmised. He was headed to Damascus to persecute and prosecute and kill and imprison Christians. Secondly, this encounter was sudden. In a moment, things changed. And then the dominoes fell one after another. If Jesus is alive, then he's glorious alive. And all that he said about himself is true. And his followers, they are his. And he's been persecuting them. Or in Christ's words, you've been persecuting me. It was sudden. This wasn't the last domino to fall. This was the first to fall. This didn't come after weeks and weeks of Paul's contemplation or reconsidering Stephen's sermon back in chapter 7. No, it was sudden. Thirdly, it was undeniable. Others were there. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't wishful thinking. Paul had an encounter with the bodily risen Christ. Fourth, it was unique. It was unique. It was special. When you consider Paul's past as a Pharisee and persecutor, and you consider his supernatural encounter with the bodily risen Christ appearing to him in glory, him hearing a voice, well, this is special. This is not how most of us got saved. That's important to note. Fifth, this encounter is a powerful apologetic. A powerful apologetic. An apologetic means a defense, an argument. Paul's life before Christ and his change after Christ result in this powerful apologetic. And that's why Paul keeps sharing his testimony, his gospel story, not just a couple of times in the book of Acts. But in 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians 1, he keeps coming back to what he used to be and what Christ showed him and how it changed. Now you might wonder, is the Apostle Paul then laying out for us a good model to to talk to unbelievers about our faith by first talking to them about Getting faith, how we came to faith, how'd it go for us, telling our story. Well, that's not a bad idea. There's certainly nothing wrong with the formerly blind guy who says, I once was blind and now I see. That's his story. We shouldn't simply talk about our story or our experience. We need to get to Christ and what happened in that that weekend of Good Friday and Easter and what it means for people today. Nothing wrong with talking about how Jesus saved us, but I think Paul sees his story as rather unique and as a specially powerful apologetic. How do you explain Paul? How do you explain the foremost persecutor of Christians becoming instantly, overnight, the foremost preacher of Christ? He was a credible witness. The sixth thing we can say about this encounter is that it's typical. Uh, from one angle, it's typical. If from one angle, what Paul had was special and unique. In some other ways, Paul is like a living metaphor of how people get saved. You think of 1 Timothy 1 where he said his conversion is actually an example The Lord saved him like he did so that we would have an example of how God saves. He saved the worst sinner of them all so that every sinner would know they are savable by God. Paul's an example. His salvation in some ways is typical. It's paradigmatic. It's the paradigm. This is how it goes. This is how it works. You might not see a literal light. You may not hear a real voice. But to become a Christian, you have to have an encounter with Christ. You have to have, through the eyes of faith, a real sight of what he is and who he is and what he's done and why it matters. In the words of 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. But, the same God who said, light shall shine out of darkness at creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes, Paul saw a literal light, but he is a living parable of conversion. And lastly, this encounter resulted in immediate change it had an immediate effect it was irresistible for paul there was no negotiating here he fell to the ground he felt the goad he was kicking against and he turned around and followed christ an unexpected encounter fourthly there are universal implications Implications for Paul immediately when this encounter happened, and by extension for everyone else, even the whole world. Verse 16, Jesus said, Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things you've seen. You'll be delivered from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And that's the rest of the book of Acts, right from chapter 9 through to the end. Paul is proclaiming the gospel to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. There's always some gospel success. There's always some threat, but there's protection in the midst of it all. And God is getting his man to his place with the word as the gospel spreads. Verse 18 neatly summarizes the mission of And the message that Paul would bring. It's power-packed. There are five descriptions of Paul's ministry. And by extension, these are descriptions of every Christian's ministry. Every Christian's calling. This is what happens when Christians give the gospel to their friends. And that friend comes to believe. What happens? Verse 18. I'm sending you to open their eyes. So they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified or purified by faith in me. This was Paul's message. This was Paul's mission. That's what he was hoping would take place at this very scene As he stood on trial. This is the message, this is the mission, this is the hope of every Christian as they represent Christ in this world, as they are ambassadors, as they witness, whatever you call it. Matthew 28 says, making disciples. Whenever a Christian shares the gospel with a non Christian, not always. Not as much as we want. Maybe not this year. But this is what can happen. This is what can happen. This is what God puts ablaze into dark hearts. He opens their eyes. He turns them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. That they might receive the forgiveness of all of their sins. That they might have a place among God's people. And all of this by faith or through faith. Not because they've earned it. Not because they've, they've worked really hard to get there. It's simply by faith that we're purified, that we have forgiveness, that we're transferred from Satan to God, that we're transferred from darkness to light. If you're not a Christian, This is what you need. You need verse 18 to happen. And every Christian would say that this is what happened to them. They needed their eyes open. They needed to be turned from darkness to light, from Satan to God. They needed the forgiveness of sins. And resulting in that, they have a place among God's people. This is the gospel. This is what Paul lived for. This is what Paul eventually died for. It's what we want you to know. It's what we want you to believe. We want you to join the Apostle Paul and millions of others and many of us in this room by believing in this Christ and being saved. Three questions as we close. Three questions. Number one, it's actually in our text in verse 8, where Paul asks, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Does a resurrection sound incredible to you? Like bad, not believable, inconceivable? Well, you should think about this. You should realize that the most naturalistic among us, the most materialistic among us, still acknowledge the unknowable and the unexplainable. I think you know this. You know that not everything in your life can be studied in a Petri dish or graphed on a computer screen. There are things that are unexplainable. I mean, how do you explain the human will or conscience or human dignity or self awareness or the experience of beauty or love? We don't find these things in the petri dish. I think we all know that there has to be some sort of metaphysical, as the philosophers say, beyond the physical. You don't have to be religious to speak of luck, or the force, or Mother Earth, or chi, or karma, or aliens. There are normal people all around you who believe crazy things. I was once at a new doctor. Uh, She asked me about my education. It came up. I had done a Ph.D., she asked me what my dissertation was on. I said, uh, "Well, the shorthand is uh, 17th-century English theology." And she said, "Oh, I'm from there." And I said, "From England?" She said, "No, the 17th century." should have got a hold of her before I finished the dissertation. Maybe I could have footnoted someone who actually is from there. (laughs) People say things like, everything has a purpose. Or, he'll get his in the end without any reason to believe that. They just believe it. Well, the Bible explains these things in terms of the true and living God, who is greater than any force or mechanism or law or principle. He is God, and he's personal, and he's powerful. And if there is a God who is powerful and purposeful and personal, why would the resurrection of Jesus Christ be incredible? It's not. It's not from the scriptures of the Old Testament. No, they foretold of this. It's not according to Jesus. No, he foretold that he was going to go to Jerusalem, be crucified, and die. It's not according to his followers who saw him. And it's not according to this follower who saw him last of all, the Apostle Paul. He's a credible witness. The resurrection really happened. How else do you explain the 180 of this one guy? How do you explain it? Is it, he became a Christian for the money? No. He became a Christian for the fame? No. He was slowly convinced of Christianity as he was around these Christians? No. He kept feeling guilty about killing Christians? No. None of those work. And so if Jesus is raised, then Paul is right, And this changes everything. A second question, more quickly. Christian, if you believe that the resurrection is credible, why should you ever be ashamed? Why should you ever be shy? This is God's glorious power touching humanity and fixing this world. It is the new world in A beginning stage. It's glorious. It's marvelous. Let us say afresh with Paul in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. A third question. What would change if the resurrection weren't true? Paul explores this line of thinking in 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection didn't happen, Paul says, well, we're still in our sins, and when we die, we just die at best, or there might be judgment. And if the resurrection didn't happen, well, I'd be a fool to live like I have lived. Would we say something similar? Would you say, well, if the resurrection isn't true... Looks like i get back my Sunday mornings. <laughs> if the resurrection isn't true, yeah, I'll still go to church. I like those people. I like singing. Well, boy, that's not resurrection power. You may not know the resurrected Christ. Or, or maybe we could think of it the other way. One more question. What should change in our lives because the gospel is true because the resurrection is real what is out of line with the resurrection the risen christ Oh, i'm far from perfect but i have a renewed vigor this week to get more of life in line with the resurrection he is risen he's risen indeed this changes everything May it change more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for saving the Apostle Paul and all that that entails. We thank you as well for saving everyone in this room that is saved. We thank you for this glorious encounter where you shine glorious light into dark hearts and reveal to us Christ. Lord, help us to live in light of it. Help us to continue to ponder the death and resurrection of Jesus, to recount it, to rehearse it to ourselves and to each other. May we proclaim it. May we live it. Help us, we pray, even as now we sing reminding ourselves and recounting to ourselves what you have done for us in Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection for us. We pray in his name. Amen.